the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Parents struggle with, well, several sets of questions when the kids reach that inquisitive age. Uh, Certainly, I think most parents shudder at the notion of having to have the talk. You know, the one I'm referring to, the birds and the bees talk. And um, largely feel that they are um, wholly unprepared to answer many of the questions that the kiddies will offer up. And, of course, it becomes challenging and problematic. We can't rely on the public school system to provide our kids with sex education. And um, and if they learn it from their peers, uh, it's going to form some very unhealthy relationships and very um, unhealthy lifestyles, potentially. Along with that, I think for Christian parents, there also can be that equal sense of being wholly unprepared to answer many of the questions that our kids pose as they are exploring the claims of Christ and their faith. It is more than just simply saying, because the Bible said so, and, you know, sort of taking the God said it, I believe it, that settles it approach. Um, The kids want real answers to have a real faith. God has no stepchildren. We understand that. But how can you be best prepared to answer some of the toughest questions that your kids may pose regarding their faith and Christianity? Well, Dr. Alex McFarland joins us. He is the author of a number of best-selling books on a variety of topics. He also serves as a radio talk show host. He is director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at North Greenville University in Greenville, South Carolina. And in addition to all of the wonderful books that he has written, the latest one is one that you will want to have handy on your top shelf. It's called simply, 21 Toughest Questions Your Kids Will Ask About Christianity. And Dr. McFarland, always a delight and an education to have you join us. Well, thank you so much, Craig. It really is a thrill to be on with you. I'm deeply grateful. Is this a parallel that I draw between uh, sometimes the awkwardness that parents feel in answering questions regarding sexuality, the birds and the bees, uh, equally up there with questions regarding faith? I mean, when when your kid comes to you straight-faced and says, Daddy or Mommy, why does God allow suffering? Boy, you know, we, we tend to kind of come with a platitudes, but we don't always have the strong theological response that the kids really need, do we? Yeah, I think that's a great parallel that you draw. Um, Moms and dads get nervous about having the talk, you know, regarding sexuality, and I think they procrastinate and, and sometimes push away opportunities to talk about deep spiritual matters as well. And, you know, for a lot of reasons, not only culturally but scripturally, uh, moms and dads need to be able to help their kids process the, the questions about God and Christianity and spiritual growth that 
uh, are natural that that kids will ask you know we're we're inquisitive creatures and we're spiritually inquisitive as well and sometimes mom and dad uh, avoid those types of questions or they'll they'll reprimand their kids and say you know you shouldn't ask things like that uh, maybe because they themselves don't really know a good solid answer so the book is designed to equip moms and dads it's a fun book I mean there's there's questions kids ask me that were funny, poignant, touching, probing, uh, and so there are many questions from interviews that we did with about 111 children. I'm curious if there is a degree to this in which parents are sometimes awkward or reluctant um, or feel chagrined at answering questions because their own base knowledge is a bit lacking. And I pose that question because there are parents that I know that have, uh, on the topic of the birds and the bees, kind of taken the, you know... with sexuality as complicated as it is these days, I don't know. I was raised in the 50s. Things have changed so much. I'm I just maybe more content to allow the kids, who are smart kids, to go out and explore and find the answers on their own. Is, is that approach dangerous, particularly when it comes to spiritual matters? Well, it is, Craig, because for one thing, it, it's communicating a message to your children that these things just really aren't that important. I mean, you know, if if they really were that significant, you know, mom and dad would have taken the time to carve out an answer or to, you know, get a handle on on a good perspective. But um, you know, really, Christianity uh, is a it's a faith system that has good answers to the questions. Uh, we have good evidence for the claims of Christ, but Christianity is a, a, a relationship driven. Uh, faith, uh, not only our relationship with the Lord Jesus, but um, passing it on, evangelism and discipleship and the spiritual mentoring of children. It's, it's, I guess, for lack of a better word, I would call it life on life transference. And who better to inform the spiritual perspective of children? Who better to do that than mom and dad? But you know, the old thing: you can't give away what you don't have. Uh, if there's going to be transference and life-on-life, you know, discipleship, mom and dad have to have a, a robust faith of their own. And so we talk about that in the book, that, um, you know, the opportunity to answer your kids' questions, you know, might be really a, a reminder to drill down deeply uh, in your own life, mom and dad. And and obviously, you know, sometimes the inclination toward um, being dismissive, um, minimizing the importance of what might seemingly be a benign question to you that, in fact, is a deep, searching, probative question for a young person who... Yes, maybe raised in church and you had a family altar in the evenings, you know, uh, many families that will spend moments in the Bible every night together, things of this sort, particularly when the kids are younger. And you thought you've done everything that you can do to help establish a firm foundation in their faith. And in fact, they've just been kind of going through the paces or the motions and are now beginning to ask the tough questions that at some point in life all of us ask of what God, who God, where God, why God, uh, what of sin, what of salvation, what of my relationship to God, who is Jesus Christ, things of this sort. Our children deserve these answers because God, as we say, has no stepchildren and they will not, uh, uh, these kids cannot uh, vicariously live out their relationship of, uh, with Christ through you. So, how can we be best prepared to answer some of the toughest questions that your kids may ask regarding Christianity? Dr. Alex McFarland is with us tonight to help illuminate on all these matters.
We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Ah, yes, indeed. And back to the conversation tonight. Dr. Alex McFarland is with us. You know him as the author of a number of New York Times bestselling books, including 10 Answers for Skeptics, uh, Core Truths You Must Know for an Unshakable Faith, uh, 10 Common Questions or Objections, rather, to Christianity, and now his latest book, The 21 Toughest Questions Your Kids Will Ask About Christianity. Let's get to your calls. We're going to lead off first for Dr. McFarland in Sonoma. Aaron, come on in with your comment or question for Dr. Alex McFarland. Hi there. Certainly, I've been a parent for seven years now. We've got little ones, and our faith, my husband and I, has really you know strengthened and solidified in so many ways, and we're just on our own journey, and with our kids, it's a beautiful thing, and I, I feel really blessed and, and really grateful, but the most challenging part of parenthood for me that I would love to hear your perspective on is not so much the interaction that I have with my kids, because I feel like we're learning and growing together every day. But my my uh, husband and I growing up in Christian households have parents that look at us in a way that and, and expect us to behave in a way and teach our children in the same way that they have taught us, and we're not the same people. And so with our family and with other folks, it's just the most challenging part of parenthood. Are you talking about in the sense of what, like certain traditions or just um, uh, parenting styles? Overall, you know, like when I was pregnant with my second child, my mom asked me, you know, do you really believe? And, you know, they sort of think like if I don't express it in the same way, then it must not be correct or you know what I mean? Like, I might not be passing it on. And and my father-in-law said, you know, we're really the godparents for children. Um, as if we can't do it ourselves. <laughs> or, I mean, of course, everybody, it takes a village for sure. But, you know, these things that are passed on, I think it's important to realize that as much as we have the common um, faith and common denominators, we're all on our own journey and path, and we sort of have to respect how we're doing this, you know, and being really careful that our children will come up in their time, but we do have to leave them, and we can't let go, and we have to guide them, you know, at least until they're 18, but I'm sure it goes on and on and on, you know, that's the... Oh yeah! Ask, ask any parent with kids in their forties and fifties, and they'll and they'll tell you that. So, all right, uh, let's uh, let's turn to Doctor McFarland for a response. Um, Alex, this of course is a predicament. Oftentimes, uh, parents may have a certain parenting style or a manner in which they feel the spiritual legacy should be uh, passed on, and all of a sudden they see their own kids with kids of their own, and maybe they're not insisting that they be involved in uh, Royal Rangers or whatever the case might be. Talk a bit about that, if you would. Well. You, you know, um, salvation is the same for all people in that we put our faith in the Lord Jesus. But Christian growth is kind of different for, for all people. You know, what um, is a catalyst in the Christian growth of one person? Um, God might use something different to spiritually mature another person. And so I want to say a big word of encouragement to the caller and to all moms and dads that, um, you know, uh, there, there will be no shortage of people to give advice or even to be sometimes critical. But don't let that discourage you, and don't let that uh, make you second-guess yourself just by virtue of being mom and dad. Uh, just genetically, you've got home court advantage, and nobody can... Nobody can influence the spiritual direction of a child like the parent. 
Um, it, you know, it's very poignant in um, uh, Deuteronomy 6 and Exodus 13, where the Word of God um, says, you know, when it comes to pass that your son will ask you, why do we do these things? Then you will say, when Pharaoh would not let us go, God with a strong hand brought us out. And, and it kind of the implication is that your children will look to mom and dad and say, hey, I, I want what you've got. So I would say... Um, be in the Word, be in prayer, uh, you make sure that you're walking with Jesus, and then let the Holy Spirit do the driving. And over time and through circumstances and just consistent, authentic Christian living, uh, God will, God will um, steer you in the way that you can best be the Christian parent that your children need. Is it a difference, Alex, between sort of um, forcing our children into the Christian mold versus modeling our own faith you know the do as i do versus do as i don't uh, you know the don't do as i do do as i say kind of scenario uh it's very much modeling i think that that is the the winning uh approach my friend josh mcdowell uh, who i'll be with him thursday and friday in texas actually but josh says you know rules without relationship breeds rebellion mm-hmm. and and just a list of do's and don'ts uh, while it's important to have standards, but just a list of, of do's and don'ts uh, won't cut it. I, I think legalism has created more skeptics and atheists than all the uh, naturalistic philosophers. Well, and I think we all know cases. I certainly can cite them from uh, my uh, my sphere of, uh, of acquaintances where parents on some occasion would insist that the child go to Sunday school and things of this sort. They themselves, however, not fully to participate. And then when the child is, uh, you know, of age, 18, moves out of the house and suddenly, you know, um, uh, dumps church and never wants to go back, wonders, well, what happened? You know, it's got to be, like you say, modeled so that the old saying, more is caught than taught. Now, there does need to be some good intellectual content. Uh, there needs to be substantive answers to the questions, and that's what we do in the book. We try to give good answers, uh, age-appropriate answers, because in, in the 111 children I interviewed, we, we would notice that the questions of a 5-, 6-, 7-year-old uh, were different than the questions of a 10-, 11-year-old, a 12-year-old, a pre pre-adolescent. So it's a combination of both. But even, um, let, me, let me say mom and dad, you don't don't feel like, um, gee, I, I'd better be a, a theologian, um, you know, to be able to speak into the lives of my children. Oftentimes, just the, the, the visual that mom and dad love Jesus, that they're walking with the Lord, and uh, there, is, there is a good answer to all the questions, even if, if I don't know what it is. Um, but there's there's just a trust that seems to be bred in the heart of a child when they see mom and dad consistently, authentically living out their faith. And then there'll come time when you can have the, the conversations like we talked about, the spiritual coming-of-age conversations. But, um, you know, I would say mom and dad, one of the most potent apologetics that you can set forth before the watching eyes of your kids is your own authentic, committed walk with Jesus Christ every single day. This is sort of the uh, the Pauline follow me as I follow Christ approach? 
Absolutely. Dr. Alex McFarlane with us tonight. He, Director of Christian Worldview and Apologetics at North Greenville University in Greenville, South Carolina. He is also the host of Explore the Word radio program, nationally syndicated. Um, he has traveled and spoken to over a thousand churches during his apologetics career and um, written a number of best-selling books. No doubt this one destined to be the next bestseller. 21 toughest questions your kids will ask about Christianity. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Best-selling author Dr. Alex McFarland, his new book, 21 Toughest Questions Your Kids Will Ask About Christianity. By the way, the book available through the usual suspects, meaning uh, Bay Area bookstores. I think there's one or two of those that still exist. Amazon.com and also through uh, Dr. McFarland's website, 21toughestquestions.com. And that's spelt out. I mean, uh, enumerated. 2121toughestquestions.com. Do some parents in your experience, Dr. McFarland, feel threatened when their kids start to approach them, particularly as a child gets to be of age, you know, uh, early teens, things of that sort? And here you've been dutiful in terms of taking the kids to school, to Sunday school and church, and you really thought you've done everything right, and you feel firm that your child has a strong uh, faith experience, and then they come start asking these very fundamental questions. Do parents sometimes get defensive on that? Uh, yeah, they do. And and let me say this: uh, I'm not you know bashing mom and dad or being critical, but not only do moms and dads sometimes get defensive, but sometimes they just make excuses. And you know, in doing all these interviews, um, periodically I would hear moms and dads say, you know, oh my goodness, you know, I'm not a theologian. I, you know, I've never been to seminary. I'm, I'm just a mom and a dad. And, you know, let me say this, to shape the spiritual lives of your kids, you don't have to be a theologian. But before God and uh, in the sight of, of the Lord and the church, um, in the home, uh, parents are called to be the spiritual drivers of the family, really. And so uh, I, I challenge moms and dads in the book, you know, avoid the deer in the headlights look. You know, when, you're, when your children ask things like, you know, did the baby Jesus wear diapers? Or if God made everything, who made God? Uh, and how does God hear the prayers of all the people in the world at once? You know, things like that. One little boy asked the question, uh, you know, my pastor says Jesus and Satan are fighting. What are they fighting with? Lasers? You, you know, um, you know, use use these these wonderful opportunities to show that uh, the the questions have answers. Um, but let me say this: oftentimes, I think in in recent decades of Christianity, there's the assumption that uh, I pray the sinner's prayer, Lord, come into my life and save me, Amen, and that's it. And I wait around five more decades, and someday I'll die. Um, and just getting saved is the end of the equation. Um, there's also the um, kind of the the assumption, you know, if I if my child goes to youth group or Sunday school, check that box off, uh, the duty is done, and that's the end of my job. And it, it's it's so much more than that. And what a what a wonderful opportunity it is. But you know, Second Peter one sixteen says we have not followed cleverly devised fables. Um, the gospel is not faith alone. It is faith, but it's a faith validated by compelling lines of evidence. 
So it's, it's not just that we're going to resolve to believe a myth in spite of the evidence. No, we, we can defend our faith because of the great evidence. And so mom and dad uh, embrace this wonderful calling, this wonderful opportunity, because in you know, prepping to build spiritual champions out of your children, uh, you yourself will probably grow and mature, and your love of Jesus uh, and your confidence in him will, will, will grow as well. In that sense, then, is it better when a child presents a theological question that we may not feel fully comfortable in asking, especially if they, you know, come into something that's that's fairly deep and we feel like we're just ill-equipped, is it better to say, I don't know, than to lie or to, uh, you know, try and make something up? Oh, yeah. I mean, don't snow job a child. They'll see it from a mile away. And, and certainly don't uh, just make up a lie because they'll be on the Internet and they'll, they'll find out the truth. You know, um, know this, that, that we live in a time of so much information that if you don't uh, proactively give the answers and chart the course, uh, your kids will find a spiritual roadmap somewhere and it might not be the right one. And so um, it's perfectly fine. In fact, it's really healthy. Sometimes when the parent says, hey, that's a, that's a great question, you know, uh, give me a couple of days and together let's, let's work through this together. But, um, you know, there is mystery. Even uh, the deepest Christian, I mean, think of, you know, think of somebody like a Billy Graham or, or uh, David Jeremiah or the great Christian leaders that we look up to. Uh, they're still things that they are learning, and there's still mystery. Um, there's so much we do know, and then there are things that uh, this side of heaven will never know. And so uh, let, let your sons and daughters know that uh, Christianity is, is concrete, but it's abstract. I mean, we know Jesus died and rose again. Uh, there's an empty tomb. He literally was nailed to a cross to pay for our sins. So there, there's much about the faith that is concrete and uh, and provable and documentable. But then there, then there are things like, um, you know, when will Jesus come back? We, we just don't know. Um, why does a good, godly, faithful Christian family suffer the loss of a loved one? Um, why can a faithful Christian get laid off of their job? Uh, you know, we don't know all the answers, but we know God is faithful. You know, C.S. Lewis, Craig, C.S. Lewis said... Um, regarding the death of his own wife. And here's a guy that had given much of his adult life to defending the faith, and he lost his wife. His wife passed away. And Lewis uh, wrote, uh, God, I know now why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face, questions flee away. And so it's okay for a mom and dad to say, you know what, son, I don't really know, but I'll try to find out. But there, there are hard, concrete facts and then there are there, there are areas of mystery where we have to trust God. And then, too, aren't we, don't we need to be sensitive in terms of the degree of maturity of the child, both from a spiritual standpoint and an age standpoint? I mean, that, that whole milk-to-meat thing. I mean, I have seen some parents who, for example, are big fans in the study of eschatology and uh, the dispensationalism. They've got down pat. 
uh, explaining to a child uh, sin, death, judgment, damnation, sin, salvation, sanctification. The child knows nothing of that, but mom or dad drags the kids off to every single conference on eschatology they can get their hands on. That, that's true. That's true. And you know what? Uh, steak is a wonderful thing, but if you cram it down the throat of an infant, uh, it probably will choke. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I, I've got to say this um, from preaching in 1,400 churches and being president of a seminary. Uh, I love the body of Christ, and I love believers of all strata. But um, there are believers that. Um, are you know straight as an arrow theologically, but as empty as as, as a bank vault uh, as far as their heart and their joy, and like so much of of the Christian life, um, there, there's got to be a balance. There's there's um, learning and knowledge and content and data, but then there's there's trust and waiting on God and. Uh, you know, we don't want to make the Bible say less than what it says, but we don't want to make the Bible say more than what it says. Um, and that that balance of having standards but not being legalistic, um, knowing that we're free in Christ, but that doesn't mean that we're free to go and, and sin uh, with no restraint. And so... Um, you know, I was in Colorado, Craig, speaking at a men's retreat and doing some of this content while the book was in process about a year and a half ago, because I spent over two years on this one book. And, uh, you know, I was talking about being a godly man and a husband and a father. And uh, uh, during the break, a man came up and he said, you know, Alex, I hear you. This is great. You know, but I mean, the kind of disciple you're talking about to love Jesus and love the family and first Peter, you know, lay down your life for your spouse and you know the kind of christian you're talking about i mean that would be like like every day 24 7 and i'm like uh yeah yeah, i think that's what god calls us to to uh give him 100 percent and so uh more than ever in this culture in this milieu uh that's what we christians are called to do to give jesus our all and it will bear fruit in the lives of the next generation, our kids uh, who follow after us. And certainly in the process of giving all to Christ and training up a child in the way that he should go. Uh, wonderful insights inside the pages of this new book. 21 Toughest Questions Your Kids Will Ask About Christianity. And not only can be a great primer for mom and dad uh, when the questions arise, but also take you deeper, foundationally speaking, into your own faith. The book, again, is available at um, 21toughestquestions.com. That's the number 21, 21toughestquestions.com, or, of course, Amazon.com. And as always, our thanks and appreciation for his time in the insights. Dr. Alex McFarland, Christian Worldview and Apologetics Director at North Greenville University in Greenville, South Carolina. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You, um, If you are a frequent television viewer, I do not count myself amongst those numbers, but for those of you that are, you might have been watching recently the uh, runaway smash hit early on uh, TV series called Under the Banner of Heaven. And uh, it, it's kind of a religious murder mystery. Is there such a thing as that? Um, and I won't take time here at the top of the conversation to go into uh, to mo- too much detail uh, because I want to get into our visit with our next guest, who is, in fact, a former member of the Mormon Church. 
She has written a number of best-selling books. In fact, she has more than 30 bestsellers to her credit. She also has a Ph.D. in biblical studies. Joins us now to discuss a, a book that is now retitled and re-released called Under the Banner of the Mormon Code. And we're pleased to have join us once again Dr. Latane Scott. Dr. Scott, thanks so much for carving some time out of your schedule to be with us. Oh, what a pleasure. Thank you. Tell me first a, a bit sort of from your, your perspective, why the fascination with this? I mean, I, I, I suppose in the sense, I mean, obviously, uh, Americans, like a, a lot of Westerners, uh, love to get pulled into murder mysteries and uh, whodunit type stories and what have you. We have for, you know, going back to uh, the days of her Sherlock Holmes. This particular TV series, though, has a bit of a twist in that it is kind of against the setting of Mormonism, um, all of the the primary protagonists in the the story, uh, or are Mormon or or have uh, some involvement with the Mormon Church. Why do you think that's attracting so much attention? Well, under the banner of heaven was based on a best selling book by John Krakauer, and he based his uh, narrative nonfiction on an incident that actually happened in the 1970s in Utah, where an offshoot of the Mormon Church, some I guess we would call them Mormon extremists, um, had a woman that that kind of married into their clan, and it really was a family clan. And she didn't really toe the line on some things like having multiple wives um, and other things, and they ended up murdering her. And this is, I mean, this is a, a documented case uh, that actually happened. And Krakauer's book detailed that. But when Hulu made a series out of it, they put in it a couple of characters that weren't from real life, but who were, one of them was a faithful Mormon. And I think the thing that made the big difference, Craig, with with the listeners and the watchers of this this uh, Hulu series, was that they saw what happens to a faithful, you know, true blue Mormon when he begins to see that his past, his um, all of the things that he held most dear about Mormonism actually don't have reality and fact. In mm. other words. Um, most of the history of the Mormon Church has been just made up or plastered over or prettied up, but it's actually quite a bloody uh, background, or at times, as, as we've seen in uh, the history of probably the least, certainly the last one hundred plus something years, and that is when certain things come out that tend to be very inconvenient. Then the history of the church gets rewritten and washed over, and and uh, the the denial factory uh, kicks into high gear. Beyond obviously some aspects, and I think you know for for fairness and clarity's sake for our listeners, there are different branches of Mormonism. There's sort of the more traditional. LDS, Utah, Mother Church brand of Mormonism, and then we have a lot of offshoots. I'm thinking of, for example, the the Warren Jeffs um, uh, offshoot that that really gets into the notion of multiple wives to a very significant degree and a very, very closed type of society where, on average, and correct me at any point, Dr. Scott, if I'm incorrect here, most LDS church Mormons, well, perhaps a lot of their social life might be amongst other Mormons and within their own family. They, they certainly don't eschew interaction with non-Mormons um, and, in fact, oftentimes are, are very, very active in the community around them. 
Well, it's kind of a peculiar situation. When I was a, a very faithful Mormon at Brigham Young University, um, at that time, Brigham Young University was was for members of the main group that you just mentioned, and, and everything you said was accurate, by the way. Um, but also at BYU when I was there were several people from polygamous compounds in Mexico and in Arizona. Uh, young people that had been sent by their families to Brigham Young University because it was such a high quality of education. So this wasn't something really openly talked about, but, you know, I knew that uh, once you started talking to people about their background and they weren't, usually weren't very open about it, but you could find, finally figure out if they were from Mexico and they were from a particular community down there, they were from a polygamous branch of the Mormon church. And I think at last count, Craig, um, maybe 50 or 60 distinct movements have come out of the mainstream Mormon church. Hmm. Now, aside certainly from the polygamy, which of course tends to still, even in this day and an age, when uh, when almost seemingly anything goes, it still tends to raise eyebrows. And yet, I think there is um, a pretty significant group uh, just amongst the population that probably still positively views the, or still views the church in a, in a positive fashion, in the sense that, as I mentioned, the, the the people of the church tend to be very involved in in civic life and, and community life and, uh, you know, well-known for certainly clean living. You know, if you if you say, well, my neighbor, you know how he is. He doesn't smoke, drink, or go with girls that do. <laughs> They'll probably say, oh, yeah, he's a Mormon. You know, there's that there's that sense of, of, of a high level of discipline and healthy, clean living lifestyle. And yet, Below the surface of sort of the presentation that all is well, the families get along, divorce never happens, it's all, uh, you know, um, coming, everything's coming up roses, there is a side of Mormonism, and again, now to be distinct, I'm not talking here about the, 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 the cult end of the polygamy side of the extreme end of LDS, but rather sort of within the mainstream church, that there's still a side of Mormonism that is not really what it's cracked up to be. You know, there's an inordinately large percentage or large uh, factor of Mormon women who are on antidepressants and and or consider suicide because of the expectations that are put on them to live that kind of lifestyle. And, of course, if you believe, as I did, that when I got married that I was going to have as many children as my body could reasonably bear because there were spirits in heaven waiting to inhabit bodies and they needed Mormon bodies, and so I was willing to do that. I didn't believe I was going to practice polygamy on Earth, but I did believe I would practice it in heaven when I became a goddess, and my husband's other wives were goddesses, and he was a god, and we would be populating planets. Well, you can imagine that 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 kind of expectation for eternity coupled with the fact that you really do want to put the best foot face forward uh, for your faith. You want your children to be, you know, dressed nice, and you uh, you want to be the, the hostess with the mostess and cook and clean and, you know, participate in church work. And it, it's really overwhelming for women. And I've spoken to many women who um, just suffered so silently, not because the church was repressing them, but because of the expectations that the church and they put on them to to um, model future godhood 
and it's it's quite a burden to, to carry. Yeah, it would seem to me. I mean, you're you're describing a model that is very, in other terms, very works based. And as we know from a biblical perspective, a, a works-based faith uh, never never turns out well. Uh, you know, our, our, our works mm-hmm. are a result of our, uh, our salvation um, or a product of our salvation and not the other way around. And so I would imagine it must be pretty exhausting trying to live up to that standard. And then also finding yourself in a religion that is... Um, pretty close-minded, and by that I mean, and I even say it on this program, hey, if I say something on the air that you think sounds like a lot of hooey, don't take my word for it. Go and check it out. Go talk to your pastor. Dive into the Word and see if it doesn't agree, and if the Word doesn't agree and proves me wrong, then please call me and tell me I'm an idiot and a liar. That kind of questioning or sort of, uh, shall we say, uh, uh, doubting Thomas trying of one's own faith, that's not encouraged within Mormonism at all, is it? Well, not only that, Craig, what you're aiming at and what I'm aiming at is to help our Christian brothers and sisters have compassion for these people that are overwhelmed with having to earn their salvation or in, in Mormon terminology to earn their exaltation because they believe salvation is guaranteed to everybody if you're born on earth but exaltation means where you end up in heaven and you have to earn that you're absolutely right and so you and i both want um, uh, your listeners to come away with the impression that these people that seem so formidable with this great you know this uh, and, and they're trying their hardest to do their best that there's there many of them are suffering because this is quite a burden that their their religious faith puts on them and um, and you mentioned that they're being exclusive I don't think you use that word um, from the point of view of a Mormon I was very proud of that I I this uh, this close-knit group was something I was proud of and to be honest with you Craig I've been a member of the same congregation for 50 years now once I left Mormonism same Christian con- congregation of people and I love that we stick together too so you know what we see is a disadvantage in, in others we need to just make sure as, if we're going to turn the searchlight of criticism on a group that we have a um, that we, when it shines back on us we're not doing the same thing um, that's why I think people often ask is Mormonism a cult and um, I just wanted to ask you Craig what do, what do you think about that well, you know, as as I understand a cult, and there, there's a couple of degrees to which I, I would define it. First and foremost, when it comes down to the the most fundamental rudimentary rudimentary definition of what salvation is, uh, I I would suggest. Yes, because I do not see within Mormonism the the singular belief that the only way by which man may be may be forgiven forgiven of sin and regenerated and and relationship with God restored is singularly and only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And yet I understand that there's so much of Mormonism that is works based, which then I think would would in a sense qualify it as being a bloodless cult, meaning that it does not singularly 
turn on Christ's work on the cross. And then when you add things like, yeah, the, the, the sense of being, being a tight-knit community is not always a bad thing, provided that, you know, it, it doesn't become an echo chamber. And what I love about mm-hmm. evangelical Christianity is not only are questions encouraged, I think that it, that, it, mm-hmm. that it really ought to be part of what we do. Hath God said, let's check out and see what the Word has to say. Asking questions seems to be something that, at least from my understanding, is not always encouraged within the Mormon Church. I mean, I would suspect if you went to any of the twelve elders and said, "Okay, about these uh, about these plates of Moroni," um, and uh, so they came, they were discovered, they were translated, but you don't have them in the church library because God took them back up to heaven. Hmm, that's interesting. I mean, the one thing that's beautiful about Christianity is that we can demonstrate not only from the eyewitness accounts that we see and the harmony of the Gospels and throughout Scripture, but there's also architecture and history that demonstrates that many of the things that we see and hear and read about within God's Word is, in fact, verifiable by extra-biblical sources, and that's not necessarily the case within Mormonism. So from those two points, I would say, yeah, I would probably put, although maybe not in the same category as a a cult, quote-unquote, like a Jonestown, Jim Jones-style cult, I would still have to say, and I would would even say this to a a, a Mormon friend, that I'm, I'm afraid that a lot of Mormonism does appear to be a cult. You know, I agree completely with you, and I don't know whether, uh, when we put this together, there are four characteristics of a pseudo-Christian cult. In other words, a cult that uses the terminology of Christianity, but um, is a a cult, and one is that it deifies man or mankind, and we talked about that when I told you that I believed I was going to become a goddess and my husband was going to become a god. We've already talked about, and you brought up very aptly, the different view of salvation, a works-based salvation. When you mentioned the uh, the golden plates, what did the Book of Mormon intend to do? And it intended to make up for the lacks in the Bible. So the third characteristic of a cult is that it ostracizes Scripture or replaces it or diminishes it. And the only thing we didn't talk about that's the fourth characteristic of God, and I think this is remarkable, we did this, you and I not just discussing this ahead of time, is we did not talk about how a God, the Father in, um, in Mormon theology, was a former man who lived on a different planet than this and became a God. Yeah. So the fourth characteristic of a cult, we, we actually just in talking about it, We've just been talking about what we know about Mormonism. We've already identified three of the four characteristics of a cult. And, you know, I find it fascinating because when we talk about man's sin nature, I mean, certainly the notion of wanting to to um, uh, transplant or supersede God's authority, I mean, that was hinted mm-hmm. at even within uh, the Garden of Eden when the serpent came and said, well, mm-hmm. hath God said? And, and the notion of man wanting to take on uh, God-like characteristics. I have to tell you, uh, as a believer of many years now, I find even the notion exactly Exhausting. I would have no interest. God says, I am the only Lord thy God, and you will have no other gods before me. And I don't even want to think about the notion of being competitive, uh, let alone being on the same par. I am quite content with God being God. And, and I think that notion of of becoming a deity or having, I mean, I, I may have traits in terms of, of being created in the image and likeness of God, but I am not God. And when we start to do that, we find ourselves, quite frankly, taking on the characteristics of another very prominent character in Scripture, and that is Satan himself, who wished Mm -hmm. to be God. That's right. 
And therefore, you look at that from a purely scriptural standpoint and say, you know, if Mormons insist that, you know, we, we all believe in the same God, it's just a little bit of a different approach. We've got a little bit more current revelation, you know, that it didn't end with the, the final pages being written of the the uh, the New Testament somewhere in the Middle East uh, 2,000 or 1,500 years ago, whatever the date might be. But instead, it was just, you know, less than 150, 200 years old written here and just right over here in Utah. Boy, you got to look at that and say there seems to be something that's not quite computing. With me today is Dr. Latane Scott. She has a newly released and, and retitled a book called Under the Banner of the Mormon Cold. And she draws from her own life experiences to help readers understand the current day fascination with Mormonism, particularly as it's capturing some attention um, with the current television series Under the Banner of Heaven, as well as helping us understand not only what Mormon teaches, how it differs from traditional mainline fundamental five pillars of the faith style of Christianity and then ultimately and perhaps most importantly how we can reach our Mormon friends for Christ. We take a time out. We'll come back with more as Lifeline continues. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 